Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is time for Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. And the power panel is in place. I have Jeff Verdorn, Pastor Tom Parrish, and who knows if 007 is going to show up today. He does as he does, as he pleases. Right? We don't know. That's why he's 007. That's why he's 007. Yeah. So if you have questions, let me know what they are. You can text them over anytime, 877 2484, again, 877-933-2484. All right, let me start with a question from my favorite listener. Um, Here's the question. Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel, where are they spending eternity? Well, I believe that they were saved. Um, Remember that in the Old Testament, you were saved by, wait for it, By faith, (laughs) Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that was faith, very simple faith. And remember what faith is. Faith is believing something is true and entrusting in it for your salvation. So today, after the cross, we believe in what God has done, what he has revealed to us in his death, burial, resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Before the cross... They believed God. Abraham actually believed God would bring him a child, right? And that's basically what he was believing. But Adam and Eve would have known that God was real. They would have known that he was true, and they would have known that he had the power over their eternal life. So I believe that all Old Testament saints, those who believed in God, will be in eternity with us. I agree. I don't see any reason the Scripture would give us any other idea or understanding. And the bottom line is, is that the Bible says the Lord is eminently fair and his heart is that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And going right back to Adam from that moment on, he was trying to save everybody. I think they're there. There's a passage in in Hebrews 11, which is kind of known as the hall of faith. So it's describing all these Old Testament saints. And it says this, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. They did not receive the indwelling Holy Spirit, this rebirth like we do after the cross. But it says this, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So I think our inheritance is their inheritance. Nicely done, gentlemen. Uh, Question uh, is, the next question is, Paul, was Paul the same age as Jesus or was he older? When or younger, when when he was called on the road to Damascus, or because we actually, actually we have quite a number of decades of Paul's life described in the New Testament, right? Um, so when he was called, I don't know that we know how old Paul was, but I think he was older than thirty three years old when on the road to Damascus, if I recall. Well, you know, you weren't even a rabbi, or you wouldn't even be called a teacher until you were thirty years old. And among the Jews. So he had been doing this for quite a while. So I have the sneaky suspicion he was a little older than Jesus. All right. Great answers. Here's another question I have. 
When you hear people say, you need to submit your life to the Lord, what does that mean? And how would you do that? I think for most people, that word submit sounds hard. Wow, I got to grovel. I got to get down. I've got to really get on my knees a lot through broken glass. That's not what it's talking about at all. When it's talking about submitting, and I would much rather use the term pursue, I'm not, I don't need to submit to Jesus in the sense that I need to feel so bad about myself. My goal, since I have come to know him, is not to pursue him. And that means I want to think like him. I want to know him. I want to do his will. I want him to speak through me. I want to hear his voice. I want to do everything that represents Jesus. When we do that, we have truly submitted in the biblical sense. You know, so it's not a process of what rules do I got to follow or how do I have to degrade myself. It's really an elevation. Submitting to Jesus really means elevating yourself now to become like him in humility, the one who saved you, the one who uh, walks with you, and the one who gives you eternal life. You know, this word submitted is really has been corrupted by the world. We see it now as a bad thing, but biblical submission is actually a very good thing, a beautiful thing. In fact, it says that Jesus submitted to God the whole time he was on earth as a man. So he didn't speak anything of his own accord, but only that which his father wanted him to speak. That is true biblical submission. And in the same way that I think this idea of authority, of male authority in the household or wherever, and the and the female submission, and we, we corrupted those ideas in a way, um, and when you understand them biblically, they're really actually beautiful. In fact, we were just talking about this before the show. That passage in Scripture in Ephesians 5 where it says, wives submit to your husbands, and husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, there's submission in and of itself, right? That whole passage starts with this passage, submit to one another then as to the Lord. And that's a beautiful picture when you have two Christian spouses submitting to one another as unto the Lord. But I think probably the best description of biblical submission is when Jesus in the garden said, if it was up to me, I would find another way out of this, right? right? But he said, not my will, but your will be done. And the point is, he had the power to do it. He Even did. though he became totally man and he didn't, you know, use his powers, it's kind of like underneath that, that uh, robe he wore was that big S for Superman. <laughs> he had all the power but he chose not to use it. That is submission in a way that I don't think most of us understand. We will submit when we don't have any other choice. You know, when when you're out and the police stop you, you stop your car and you submit to what they have to say because they pulled you over. Jesus had the power to do anything he wanted and yet willingly gave that up to follow the Lord's, the Father's voice and to do the Father's will. That is incredible. Hmm. Nicely done, gentlemen. If you have a question, send it over. I get... Uh, paid a commission for each question that comes in. <laughs> so I'm just into volume, now, you know. I like it. Yeah, and you guys are doing a great job so far. 877-933-2484. So when the woman touched the hem of Jesus, Jesus, uh, did he really not know who touched his robe or did he or did he know and he just wanted her to admit it? I like, come clean. Uh, you know, this brings to the question, was Jesus in his incarnation as a man omniscient? Um, or is is the power—Pastor uh, Tom was just talking about this. He could have used his power at any moment, but did he take his 
godliness, his power as God, including his omniscience, and kind of leave it on his chair in in the heavenly throne when he came down and to be like man. And so I think there's this idea that he he didn't have omniscience when he was a man, that he didn't necessarily know who was the one who touched him. But I, I don't know that that's a, a major part of that story. The, I think the major part of the story is she tell, he tells the woman once he identifies her that your faith has healed you, right? And Now, physical healing happens often in the Scripture, and, and it's like people are striving for that in this world right now today. It's like, Lord, heal me. I want to be healed of my ailments. And, I, and anytime someone is sick, that's the most immediate need they have is for healing. But there is no pattern in the New Testament some were healed when they touched Jesus. Some were healed when they asked him for it. Some didn't ask for it, and they were healed. Uh, there's many, many different ways that people were healed, but I think they all have something in common in the Gospels, and that it's their faith that healed them. And therefore, I think it's a picture of the true, uh, most significant healing of all, and that is the healing of sin and death when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think that the Lord literally could feel the power of his healing power going out of himself into her. I love this statement in here in Mark 5. They're talking about it. And he says, who touched my garments? And the disciples, I'm sure this was a bit of almost a piece of humor. He said, what do you mean? The crowd's pressing in on you. Everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? But he knew what she was coming for, even though in his humanness, he probably didn't know her name or anything about her. But the power went out and she was healed. Good point. All right. It is time for Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. They are here to answer your questions. Send them over, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn are my guests. And Rosie, how about a little banjo music as we go to break? We want to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We're creating encouraging posts every day to help you focus on the important things as you spend time on social media. From graphics that feature Bible verses and quotes from our hosts and show guests, to articles about topics you are interested in, to videos from our hosts. Search Faith Radio on social media sites to connect with us today. Welcome back to Guide Talk, or Guys Who Talk. Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish, my power panel, 007, may show up. Now, here's a question, a uh, comment, actually, by a listener regarding Paul's age. Acts 7, 58 refers to Paul as a young man. Not sure how long after he left for Damascus, but, ex- but expect it wasn't too long after the stoning of Stephen. Hmm. I consider myself a young man. You do? I do. Hmm. <laughs> Okay. You are. <laughs> Tom, oh, I'm sorry. All right. Sorry. All right. Here's another great question. What does it mean to exercise faith in the Lord? What counts? I suppose another complimentary question would be, what does it mean to live by faith? Yeah, that's a, it's a really big question because if you think it, the righteous shall live by faith. So we're told that we live by faith. Not only are we saved by faith, that's clear, right? Not by works, uh, but we're saved by 
by grace through faith. But now God says that now that you've been saved by faith, we are also to live by faith. Yeah. Well, that's that's a little more nebulous. It's like, well, what does it mean to live by faith? If you told me that as a Christian you're to live by the rules, do this, do these 10 things, and don't do these 20 things, well, that's pretty straightforward. I can get that. I can make an outline of the things that I'm supposed to do or not to do or whatever. But living by faith is a little bit more nebulous. And I think it goes to trusting the Lord, letting him be the the your your life, your guide, your help, your 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 decision making. When you live when you're living by faith, you're saying like we talked about earlier, not my will, but your will be done. I read a saw a book one time a long time ago. It says God is my co-pilot. And I remember thinking right away, if God's your co-pilot, switch seats. He doesn't want to sit next to you. He wants to be your life. But I think the only I think two keys really quick. Two keys I think for living by th- faith are thankfulness and contentment. Yeah. And if you come to the Lord in thankfulness and contentment, you're probably living by faith. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a hundred times. Pastor, how can I have more faith? And that's a misunderstanding of faith. Faith is not a commodity. Because Jesus said it only has to be the size of a mustard seed, and that's pretty tiny. But you have to have an object. Hmm. Your faith has to have an object in order to work, and that object is Jesus. And so what we're saying is when you have faith or you're building your faith or you want more faith, it is putting everything in the hands of Jesus. When I was in elementary school, we used to, uh, way back in the early days when the astronauts were going up in space for the first time, we used to play marbles. We'd bring a little bag of marbles each day, and we'd shoot marbles and I always lost my marbles. Mm-hmm. That, that's another story, but we won't go there. Yeah, but I the, didn't see that one coming. <laughs> <laughs> that punchline was coming from Cleveland. <laughs> but when I lit, I had a friend. His name is Lynn Stapleton. He's now a Baptist pastor in Kentucky, and he were he was a good buddy. I learned just to give him my marbles, and he would play for me, and I come up with more marbles than I ever had before. In other words, I learned where the power was. He was the power at this. Put your faith in him. Put my faith in him. Give him the marbles. And so I'm telling people today, put all your marbles in the hands of Jesus. Trust in him. Let him make the decisions. You know, I had a story just came to mind. I I haven't thought about this story since high school. And I remember my mom saying one time her friend was washing dishes and a glass had gotten upside down and started going down the drain and was stuck and in the in the drain, and she couldn't get it out. And she prayed a little prayer. She just gave up and said, "Lord, my glass is stuck in my in the drain in my sink. I don't know what to do." And she went back to washing her dishes. Well, as the water filled up around the glass, it caused the glass to float up and away and out out of the drain. It's like if you have such a relationship with the Lord that you can even turn the little things over to Him, it probably means you're living by faith. I think we have a tendency only to go to the Lord for the big things, right? When we get a really bad diagnosis or whatever, and then we go to God. And I think if you're going to God, even for the littlest things, that's probably living by faith. Good word. I like. All right, here's a question. Uh, definitions of truth change according to times. I mean, certain traditions and things that you deem acceptable change over time, Right. At one point, it was sinful to dance, and it wasn't sinful to have slaves and treat them poorly. Why do you think our 
why do we think our version in our day and age is the right one when things will continue to change? So let me amend that question just for a second. I hope the guy or gal who asked that is okay with that. Is that truth doesn't change. What we believe is right and wrong or acceptable does change over time, but truth does not change over time. I believe truth is truth is truth. By the way, slavery, uh, this is a criticism that some view on the Bible. The Bible never condones slavery anywhere. It's, 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 if you're to love one another, indentured servitude, forced indentured servitude is never right in the Bible. And the Bible never endorses it. It does recognize it, but it never endorses it. Some of the, the slaves obey your masters kind of talk in the New Testament is really not a, like someone who was carted off from their land. It was really an employee. It was, it was first century indentured servitude, which is basically, I'll work for you if you take care and provide for me, basically. And that's basically an employment contract today. So the Bible does not uh, ever endorse slavery. Uh, so I don't think God's moral standards or truth have changed over the centuries. There's a consistency with the Word of God and the way things happen. Here's our problem. We have a tendency to focus on one verse. We don't like that verse. The verse (laughs) says, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. We don't read the context around it, or we don't read the whole chapter to figure out what the context is. When you go to the Old Testament, the Lord was up against some incredibly bad people that we don't fully understand. They were sacrificing children to Moloch. There were temple prostitutes. They were corrupting people. Uh, young girls were being kidnapped and taken away to other countries as a result of that religious belief. And there reached a point where the Lord said, if I'm going to establish my people Israel to bring to the world in the future the real story of who I am, some of these people got to go because they won't repent. And so we read that, but then we say, how could he possibly have done that? Well, I have a funny feeling we would have done it a lot earlier if it had been, we'd been in charge. He did it out of love for both those people that were caught up in that evil because they were killing each other, and also for the future. And so the truth is the truth, as you said. It doesn't change. It's objective. Today, people, though, want to change it to mean whatever they want. And that's what I call this desire to be God. I want to have the final word. I want to tell you, Jeff, how to live and what's right and wrong. And you know what? I don't have that privilege. Only Jesus does, and I have to submit to what he says, and that's the goal of the Bible. Lying is always wrong. Coveting is always wrong. Murder is always wrong, the unjustified taking of life. In fact, if you go throughout cultures across centuries, across continents, every society has laws against the unjustified taking of life, yeah. against murder. Mm-hmm. Murder is wrong. Or it's Murder is made illegal because we know inherently that it's wrong. Yeah. And we know inherently because it's wrong because that is God's moral standard, and he's placed that moral code into our hearts. And so it's common. Now, some societies will say it's it's justified to murder someone or take their lives in this situation if you steal or whatever. Others say, no, you have to have a more serious crime. Those uh, scales are out there. There's differences in that. But virtually every people group in history has believed that murder is wrong. I think that's God's unchanging moral code. I had a gentleman say to me not long ago, he said, I don't believe an objective truth. It's all relative. I said, so then you're telling me Hitler had legitimate right to do what he did to the Jews because he had the biggest stick. 
Because if there is no objective truth, then there's no one or anything we're beholding to except what we want. And if I have a bigger stick than you, guess what? I'm going to win. And nobody wants that. Everybody says, well, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. Let's think this through when we start talking about truth. Because if there is not an objective standard, we're all sunk. And when you say there's no absolute truth... You could ask them, are you sure, absolutely sure of that, right? <laughs> yeah. So you're declaring an absolute truth. I like that. So in review, um, murder is wrong, lying is wrong, and telling bad jokes is wrong. <laughs> That's true. <We laughs> and I'm looking that. to my left right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's a, here's a great question. Sorry, Tom. No, nah, that's uh, okay. Here's a great question. Can you talk about baptism of the Spirit, baptism by fire? Are they the same? One acquaintance says... You do not have the Holy Spirit if you have not been baptized by fire. You know, it's interesting. The imagery that's used in the Bible of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we have tried to quantify and turn into a doctrine. And I'm always leery about that from this standpoint. When the Spirit moves, the way he touches people affects them differently. Some are very much, uh, and I've seen people literally slain in the Spirit, I've seen other people, you know, speak in tongues. I've seen other people prophesy as a result. But what's interesting is it's never quite exactly the same for each person. So I think we need to be careful with Scripture that we don't try to quantify what this baptism of uh, fire means or the Spirit giving you fire or the Spirit doing this or that. It's still the Spirit moving. And the goal is the Spirit is moving so that we are drawn closer to Jesus and become like him. Sometimes it comes with great power. Sometimes it doesn't. But I can't find anywhere in the Scripture that says that we don't have faith in Jesus or we don't have the Holy Spirit if we don't have this experience of fire. What it says is if we reject the name of Jesus and don't follow him, we're lost. Yeah, then you don't have the Spirit. And I think this phrase, look, some of this is just what we call things. How how do we classify things? What words we use to describe certain events. I believe the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. refers to receiving the Holy Spirit when you believe in Jesus Christ. And I think that is clearly spelled out in Acts 10 and 11. If you recall, Peter goes to Cornelius's house, and while he's still speaking, the gospel, by the way, it says the Holy Spirit came on them, uh, Cornelius's family, just as it had come upon us at the beginning. So the Holy Spirit was now coming on, on these Gentiles, And the Jews couldn't believe it. And Peter then in Acts chapter 11 goes back to the disciples and he says, you're not going to believe what happened. These Gentiles received the same spirit that we received. And he says, then I remembered the Lord's word, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed, who was I to oppose it? So I think the phrase, Biblically, baptism of the Holy Spirit refers to receiving the Holy Spirit. And that's directly from the Lord's words. He's the first ones to use that phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what you were describing earlier, Tom, were some experiences that people have had. I'm never going to argue against people's experiences in the Lord. uh, But the phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit, I think, is simply the receiving of the Holy Spirit through faith. I love the questions that are coming in. Keep them coming. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. I know you've got a question that's been bugging you for a long time. You've wanted to ask your pastor. You haven't done it yet. You can ask today. Again, 877-933-2484. 
888-884-8484. Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish are my power panel. Be right back. All right, welcome to Guy Talk. The commissions are, I mean, the questions are rolling. <laughs> and we've got some great, great questions coming in. All right, uh, next up and my power panel today is Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn. In 1 John chapter 5, uh, verses 16, 17, John says there is a sin that leads to death, but not every sin. What is that sin that leads to death and, and what does he mean by death? First John 5, 16 and 17. Yeah, this is a tough one. I was just actually debating this passage with a friend of mine uh, last week. And in, in, the, in the, look, let's go up a little bit at the big picture. We know that the only, if you are still dead in your trespasses and sin, uh, that is what leads to death. Sin leads to death. If you have not received the forgiveness of the Lord, then you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. You've never received life. And so in, in the grand scheme of things, if you haven't believed in Christ, then you're dead. So the sin of unbelief is what I think is the only sin that leads to death. All other sin can, will, can and will be forgiven the moment that you confess through the Bible. So John says in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, Jesus is faithful and he will forgive you of all unrighteousness, right? 1 John uh, 2, 12 says that we have been forgiven. In other words, once you believe, you are forgiven of all unrighteousness. Um, so I think throughout 1 John and the book of 1 John, John is con- comparing and contrasting those who are not saved with those who are saved. So mm-hmm. those who know truth, those who do not know truth, those who have life, those who do not have life. If you deny that you have any sin, well, then you're not saved. But if you confess your sins before God, then you will be saved. And I think the same thing's going on here. I think in the context, he's comparing and contrasting those that have been saved with those who haven't been saved. So I think the only sin that leads to death is the sin of unbelief. I would agree with you, and here's why. You look at the Gospel of John, as well as Matthew, Mark, and Luke, everything centers on Jesus. Whether you trust in him or do not trust in him, whether you submit, as we talked earlier, to him or do not submit to him. If you have the Son, he says you have life. If you do not have the Son, you do not have life. And so when we read the epistles, the writings of these people, we have to keep in mind what Jesus said about himself and about the matters of life and death. And I've learned that I've, I've got to go back and look at those passages in the Gospels and understand what Jesus is saying about himself to interpret these passages, because I could run off in any direction with what's being said here, but you hit the nail on the head, Jeff. He's talking about Jesus here. You have Jesus, you're okay. You don't <laughs> have Jesus, you're in trouble. And so that's what I think the emphasis is, and too often— you know, one of the things that bothers me in the church today, and I'm, I want to challenge every pastor who's out there listening, every church member, quit talking about God. We mm. talk about God just like all the other religions do. It's so generalized. God has revealed himself in Jesus, God the Son, and through the Holy Spirit. And what does the Bible say? There's power in the name of Jesus. Jesus. 
if more churches would do that, I think they would see more miracles, more movement of the Holy Spirit, more things going on, and more lives saved, because people need to know Jesus. They don't need to know a generic God. He's revealed himself, and we know who he is. You've, remember, Philip? Show us the Father. Yeah. If you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. Nice work. All right, here's another question. Uh, in Exodus 3.13, Moses asked God what he should tell the people of Israel when they ask him, what is his name? And God said to tell the people, I am, right? Oh, yeah. I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. Why don't we ever call God by that name? And why do people interchange Lord and God? Well, this is this is what the I am in Hebrew is what's called the tetragrammaton, and it's four consonant letters. Hebrew doesn't have any vowels, so it's Y-H-W-H. It's where we get the, the name for God, uh, Yahweh. Um, and, and so in the Latin, some when it was translated into Latin, some thought that it would be pronounced Jehovah because Latin, I think, didn't have a Y. It had a J in its place, and so they came up with Jehovah instead of Yahweh. But the name is, I believe, that, that Y-H-W-A should be pronounced Yahweh. So that's the name of God. Now, why, I'm, I'm right with the, the question, why have English Bibles decided to translate Yahweh as Lord? And, and to tell you the truth, the history of that, it started, I think, way back in the King James, if not before, where they translated Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew as Lord. And I think it would be much better and and plainer and simpler and more proper and correct to translate it as Yahweh, the, the name of God, the Hebrew name of God, the I am. You can go clear back to the Old Testament. You go back to the days of Jesus in the synagogue. They never publicly said the name Yahweh because that would break the commandment. And if you don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, you haven't broken the commandment. So they called him Adonai which we get Lord out of. They used other names rather than the name Yahweh, although in the text, it's, it it's is. Yahweh. Mm-hmm. It's there. But if I, am a, if I am a Jew in the synagogue reading from Ezekiel or reading from the Old Testament, and it says, and Yahweh will save his people, I would not read it that way. I would read it, and the Lord will save his people, or Adonai will save his people, because I don't want to violate the law. Now when you get over into the uh, New Testament, and you get into the that, that isn't so much the issue anymore, but you're right about the translators. They didn't know what to do with the Old Testament, and they wound up carrying some of that over into the New Testament, where, quite frankly, you know, it's very plain and clear. Matter of fact, I was sharing in the green room that look at Jude in the ESV. Verse 5 is incredible because Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, says this, you know, I, you once knew it, and know it again, that it was Jesus who led the children out of Israel. Where most of the, the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries have Adonai, the earlier transcripts that go back to the 1st, 2nd, 3rd century have Azus, which is Jesus. You know, when, it's, when Yahweh is translated as Lord in most English Bibles, it's always all caps. The L-O-R-D is in all caps, and that's how they distinguish it. But there are some times in the Old Testament where it will say Adonai Yahweh. Or, yeah. or maybe it's reversed. Maybe it's, it's Yahweh Adonai or whatever. But that, that should be, if they were following their own standard of translation, that would be Lord, Lord. Adonai is Lord. Yahweh, they translate Lord. So it would be yeah. Lord, 
then all caps, Lord. Well, you can't have that. So they change it again and basically say the Lord God, I believe is what they yeah. say in, in the English translation. I actually think it would be easier and, and more consistent with the Hebrew text to say Lord Yahweh, right? And to always translate that tetragrammaton, that Y-H-W-H, as Yahweh. And the good news is— And there's we, some versions that do yeah. that, by the way. There are actually some and versions that do that. we have the right that. to do that now. We yes. have the freedom Correct. of being able to do that. Great point. And my friends who are Messianic Jews, you know, they're still—honestly, they're still leery. But they're more and more saying Yahweh. And my one friend told me the first time I did that, he said, Tom, growing up Jewish, you didn't mean Jesus. He said, this was tough. They even, write, they even write the word God oftentimes with G-D, yes. right? Because they don't want to write the name of God even. That way you can't violate the law. Yeah. Right, well done, gentlemen. Let's move on. How do we know the difference between biblical commands that are universal truths and those that are commands or guidelines for a certain period of time or group of people? Good word. Here's, here's the principle I live by for what it's worth. I encourage people, read your Old Testament. Read it a lot. Understand the stories. But make sure you go to the New Testament, and especially Jesus, to see what he does with those commands, those laws, those rules, those ways of being right with the Lord. If you do that, you have a biblical understanding of it. So today we talk about, well, should I follow the law? Well, Jesus said the law comes down to two commandments. Love the Lord your God with our heart, mind, soul, and body. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not the 613 that the Pharisees and the Sadducees have. We don't even know half those laws. So if we think we're going to do it and follow the law, we've got about another 603 that we've got to learn, and we're not learning. The fact is, look at what Jesus did with it and the New Testament did with it, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. This is basically Paul Harvey School of Hermeneutics, right? <laughs> yeah. You need to know the rest of the story, right? So in the Old Testament, God gave his law. The, the biggest example of this is the dispensation of the law, and now we live in the dispensation of grace. And under the law, Jews were supposed to follow the law. They had the external regulations to guide their national behavior. And so all those laws they needed to keep, no one could keep them perfectly, and no one was ever made righteous by following the law. That's made clear in the rest of the story, and Galatians says that. In the New Testament, we have something so much better and so much more powerful. We would no longer have to follow all of the external laws. We have the internal Holy Spirit of God. So Paul says, if you live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So now we live by faith, like we were talking about earlier. We live by the Spirit. And this all ties together what we were saying earlier. If you make your life a desire to pursue Jesus, to really know him, to think like him, to think like his word in that, guess what? You will, you will let the law flow through you in a very natural way by faith rather than by obligation. You won't lie. You won't steal. You won't covet. You won't right. do those things. Right. Those will characterize your life. All right. Good work, gentlemen. This are two verses that this listener would like some reconciliation on. All right. First is Revelation twenty thirteen, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And then the other verse is Galatians 2.16, 
I know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So the the question is, these seem like two seemingly contradictory scriptures. Yeah, so the let's take the second one first, the Galatians passage. We were just talking about this, as a matter of fact, that no one can make it to heaven, no one can be declared righteous by observing the law. You can't be good enough to earn uh, God's favor to get to heaven. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus basically says this very thing. If you think you're doing the things that Jesus said to do and not do, and you say, oh, hey, I'm doing pretty good at that, he gets this this point in chapter 6 where he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And everybody should throw up their hands and say, okay, I can't do that. Now, the rest of the story is, that's going to be a theme, by the way, for the rest of the show now. The rest of the story (laughs) is that God makes you perfect. He gives you his righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. So what's the Revelation passage about? The Revelation Mm -hmm. passage is about the lost. What you're reading is a passage of Scripture called about the great white throne judgment from Revelation 20, verse 11 through verse 15 is what's called the Great White Throne Judgment. That's Judgment Day for the lost. The rest of the story in that particular passage is that all of those who are being judged on that day, their names are not found in the Lamb's Book of Life. They never believed. They were never saved. And the Scripture says that death and Hades, all those who are lost, by the way, and that's where all the lost people are right now today, is in Hades. They will be judged according to their deeds, but they're found short because of their lack of faith, and they are thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. And I can affirm that for a very simple reason. When you look at that passage, we have passed from death to life. Death has no power over the believer anymore. So it's talking about death and Hades here, which were basically out of the Lord's presence or for those that did not believe. It's not talking about believers. It's talking about those who did not believe in the Lord Jesus. Nicely done. We'll take a break. When we come back, more Guy Talk. If you have a question, I bet we still have time for your question. Text it over. Be brave. Go ahead. 877-933-2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Thank you for joining us today. I've got Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn here in studio with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and we're doing Guide Talk, or Guys Who Talk. And what we do is we just answer questions. So if you have one, you can text it over, uh, 877-933-2484. Here's a good question. Will you go to heaven if you received Christ but died before you could be baptized? Yes. And, <laughs> you know, he who believes that his baptized shall be saved, he who does not believe you know, is condemned. 
there, you know, the baptism is not there. Baptism is important. I don't want to underestimate that at all. I baptized a lot of people, both youth and adults in rivers and everywhere else. So I believe in baptism. However, if you're not baptized, but you cry out the name of Jesus, like the thief on the cross, you get there. Because that's where the power is. It's not in the baptism. The baptism identifies you then with the Christian community and the and the presence of the Spirit. But it's Jesus' name and trusting him that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the thief on the cross. He'd be out of luck then, right? Yep. If it required some kind of water baptism to get to heaven, uh, the thief on the cross would be out of luck. But, oh, hey, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise because he believed. Yep. Nicely done. Uh, please explain... Pentecostal-type healing through people. Can this happen today, or is it putting the power in our hands and away from God's will by doing this? They claim they can heal, and I don't understand this. Well, I'm not going to endorse every healer or so-called healer or someone who claims to have the healing power of God, but this gets to the question of whether or not the spiritual gifts, which are described in a couple places in Scripture, including 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, um, uh, one of which is healing, the gift of healing, whether or not those still are present in the body of Christ today. Mm-hmm. And is this is kind of a, I think, a, a silly kind of theological argument. There's cessationists that say it no longer exists. There's continuationists to say that the spiritual gifts have continued. Well, Paul is instructing the Corinthians about spiritual gifts. Yeah. Well, if he's instructing them about them, I think they, they continue today. So I believe they're there are people in this world, believers, who still have the power of healing. And and boy, we sure hear of a lot of cases of healing from around the world. Um, so it's a spiritual gift. The interesting thing about healing, and I've been blessed. I've laid hands on a lot of people, and I've seen them healed. Hmm. I mean, things have really changed in their life. Uh, their cancer has gone away, their, their heart, you know, everything. I've also prayed over people and watched them die. Hmm. I can't determine the outcome. I don't have the power in myself, but I am willing to be used by the Lord to pray over people regardless of the outcome because I want to be Jesus' representative in that moment. And so I encourage people, yes, pray over people. But I would, And the one thing I would never do, and I, I've told leadership of the church, I will never have what we, continue, what we call a healing service that is a big public event. Now, will we have healing opportunities? Absolutely. But I don't want a big audience there, and I don't want a big crowd there, because it's not a show. And I don't know what the Lord wants to do and say to that person in that moment, but I want to be there to help them. I mentioned the one time we were in Bangladesh, and we were asked to pray for a woman who couldn't get pregnant, and her husband, and she was 39, and she had cancer. They just found out. And it was the last day in Bangladesh. It was 99 degrees and 98% humidity. Both Jan and I had a terrible headache. The last thing we wanted to do is go pray in this hot mud house for this woman and her husband. We didn't even know them. But we said, okay, Lord, we'll be obedient, and we went. I had no great inkling anything was going on. I just laid on hands, and for 45 minutes we prayed over. They bowed when they left. I went home, and I was sicker than a dog. Okay? Three months later, I get an email from one of the missionaries. Tom, Jan, do you know what happened? When Jahan Hijir was here with his wife, and you prayed over them, she said she saw power come through you. And she just came from the hospital. The cancer's gone. The cancer is completely gone. And then three months later, we get another email. Sit down. Read this. She's pregnant. And they wound up having a little boy, and they named after our first son, Matthew. The bottom line is, 
It had nothing to do with my power, but it had everything to do with obedience, even when I had a terrible headache, and my wife did too. I take back everything I said about you about the bad joke. <laughs> it's like, I have to rescind everything, right? That's a mic drop. That's a mic drop. Okay, uh, here's a comment that came in. Uh, Jesus defined good, but when he was called the good teacher, he said there is only one who is good, and that is God. Yeah. If only God is good, where does that leave Jesus and the Holy Spirit? You, or you don't read it wrong. This, I wish you could have been there and seen the expression on people's faces, especially on Jesus, because we don't get the expressions. We don't get the, the nuances of what's being said. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying, you know, because he points out, hey, nobody's good but God. You know, why do you call me good? Because he is God and because the guy got it right. And that's exactly the point of the story. So it's not a diminution of Jesus or saying he's less than God. No, no, over and over and over. We get the same message. He is God. He is here among us, and he has great power, and he is the good one. My mind's still in a hut in Bangladesh, <laughs> yeah. so I'm— Good luck with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm way back there. Yeah. You're, you're still sweating in the hut, aren't you? It's very hot. Yeah, that sounds, sounds fair, fairly oppressive, that kind of heat and humidity. Oh. I don't know how well, people We were do there it. for three weeks, and I'll tell you, it was a drain. Yeah. In that one village. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's see. How much time do we have? We have time left for a couple more questions. Uh, 877-933-2484, if you want to send it over. Uh, Let's see here. Going through all of these. Um, How about... You have a question, Rosie? Oh, you're just waving four fingers like we have four minutes left? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Professional radio guy right there. He's good. I like it. Who, me? Yeah. 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 (laughs) He picked that right up. Yeah. Yeah, I say the, the quiet part out loud, don't I? <laughs> All right, let's say uh, you are in a conversation with a Muslim and they are firm in their his or her faith. And they're as firm in their faith as you are in your faith. How do you ever convince them that Jesus is the only way? Well, it's really good that it's not our job, right? We, we should reason with people. Uh, as Paul was his practice, he went into the synagogues every Sabbath to reason with them to prove that Jesus is the Christ. But in the end, everybody is, is when you hear the door knocking on your heart, it's everybody's individual responsibility to either open that door for salvation and faith and, and or not. And so uh, I... I remember when I was first starting to study the Bible quite a bit, and you start learning a lot about God and his ways and his word, and I thought for a while, it's like, I, if you just gave me enough time with someone, you know, alone in the room, I could convince them to believe in Jesus Christ. And you know what? You can't. So all you can do is share truth with someone, to reason with them, to debate with them, to try to prove that Jesus is the Christ. Muslim background Christians that I have come to know, and our church is right next to the Muslim community where I'm at in downtown Minneapolis, they have basically taught me, quit trying to be logical in your presentation of the gospel. Quit trying to lay it out in a way that, you know, oh yeah, that makes perfectly good Western logical sense, because most Muslims don't think that way. What they do think about is they have no forgiveness. They have their shame and guilt. They have no guarantee of eternal life unless they're a martyr. You know, they have no sense of that Allah hears their prayers. You know, they pray five times a day, but they don't know if their prayers are being heard or not because they don't know if they've been good enough or not. And so the bottom line is they tell me, you appeal 
to their inner self, appeal to their heart, appeal to their loneliness, appeal to their lostness. And it's amazing how they want to then start talking about Jesus. Hmm. All right, we're kind of running out of time, and there's still some great questions coming in. So I'll ask you a dumb question. That's, that's, that's mine. All right. So if you were to adopt a pet today and you had to name your pet after the last thing you ate, what would be the pet's name? Cookie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of known as the cookie monster in my house. So, yeah, that Which was easy. Which is actually kind of a cute name for an adopted pet. It is. If uh, Cookie. Here, Cookie. Yeah. I like it. It's got a nice ring to it, Tom. Yeah. Wheat thin. <laughs> well, you could call it weedy or something. That's kind of, weedy. You know, it works. That, that's kind of a cute name, too. Yeah. Great, uh, great question. Uh, here's one more that just popped in. Does purgatory exist? No. No. Yeah, this is a... Um, a teaching within Roman Catholic traditions. Um, one of the issues with it is that once you die, there's a, a potential to move from one side to another, uh, especially through prayers, especially if you give an indulgence or whatever. And the answer is no. It's appointed for man once to die and then face judgment. Death seals your faith. For a believer, your fate is eternal life with Jesus Christ. If you're not, it's the great white throne that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Thanks for all your great questions. I, I hope you have enjoyed this hour of Guide Talk. Jeff Ferdorn, Pastor Tom Parrish have been my power panel. Uh, I thought 007 might show up, but no, he's got other things to do. He's probably on some mission overseas. He's in Europe somewhere. We yeah, know that. Moldova, maybe. I always I see him like, tied up someplace, you know. about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so thank you very much. We're going to take a break, and hour two is just ahead. Dr. Andy Scuddinga is going to join me for the full hour. We're going to talk about belonging and why is it so important to belong and what happens when somebody doesn't belong and all the things that come as a result of both situations get your questions ready it's going to be an interesting hour we'll take a really short break and be right back good job Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.